Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I've got Proverbs 3 open. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. If you haven't memorized that, I think you should. Got a great hour coming up. Mike Horton's going to be joining me in just a second. And then Pastor Tom Parrish is going to be talking about equipping Christian disciples for life. I'm so glad to be having a chance to talk to Mike Horton. Mike has uh, got an amazing story, and because of his trust and his faith, he is uh, in a a situation in life right now that you're going to be fascinated to hear about. Um, Mike is from the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. I grew up in uh, St. Louis Park and Wyzetta, for all of you local Twin Cityans. Um, And then uh, he's got quite a story to tell from there. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. All right. Now, so you uh, started off pretty average guy. You, we were uh, a varsity athlete. You did all the right things, didn't you, growing up? I did a lot of right things. I was not a varsity athlete. I'm just making stuff up, though. The beauty of what you just said is I was a mascot. And you can imagine the pressures. <laughs> if the team needed a big win, the first thing they do is they pull out the mascot. Yeah. You were integral to the team's success, oh, weren't you? Yes. Yeah, without the mascot, there's no hope. There really isn't. I yeah. was the Wyzetta Trojan, so yeah, that's awesome. feel free to be impressed. I, I am impressed. And then after uh, high school, you decided uh, you wanted to do the college routine, and you contacted 3M, uh, which is located here in St. Paul, Minnesota, and you got a job as an intern. Is that right? I did. It was wonderful. I... Uh... I've always wanted to work for 3M, seriously, since I was uh, a young teenager. And um, I actually went to 3M when I was 14. My dad dropped me off at the front door. I had on my Sears Roebuck suit. Nice. And I just went to the front desk and said I'd like a job. And an executive at the time actually came down, took me to lunch, and said, uh, well, son, you seem like a real go-getter. Um, you should probably finish up junior high and high school, <laughs> go to college, and then come back. Fantastic. And so you were able to uh, eventually be, get get a job as an interim at 3M, didn't you, in marketing? I did. And that helped pay for college, didn't it? It really did. I uh, found out the wonders of night school at the University of Minnesota. So I could work 40 hours a week as wow. an intern and then take classes, night classes at the U of M campus. Where did you get all that ambition? Was that from being a mascot or what? Well, the mascot thing, you know, we can do a whole interview on that some okay, other let's time because it's amazing. For, let's set that aside for something right. else. Okay. No, my father was uh, uh, director of business at Honeywell okay. here in, in the cities. And uh, my father is one of my uh, my biggest idols. And mm-hmm. I learned so much from my, my father and, and all my relatives. I love those stories. I really do. So you finally decided to uh, get married, and you packed up the car and moved to Georgia. Yes, we got married uh, in 1991, and um, our honeymoon was driving the Volkswagen Fox 
if you remember it. I do remember the Fox. Very tiny. Yes. Driving that with uh, lots of belongings, you can imagine at that age yeah. how much I've accumulated. Yes. Uh, down to Georgia, and, and uh, the honeymoon was a combination of making sales calls and uh, enjoying the new territory. Yeah, well, that's fun. You didn't stay in Georgia too long, did you? Did I you? did not, no. You headed to Chicago next? Chicago was the next stop. I was fortunate enough to be promoted for a key account position in Chicago in 95 and then uh, moved back to Minnesota in 97. So let's just say that my court and path is doing okay. It was wonderful. It was doing okay. 3M has been a family to me, and 3M was great to me. Okay, so then we had a little bit of, of a bump in the road. What uh, what happened in 2007? So in 2007, my wonderful mother passed away okay. of a horrible cancer, and she was so strong through it. She taught me so much strength. Um, one time, uh, a few days before she passed, I started crying a little bit, and she said, oh, you do not do that. You're <laughs> strong. You got this. Yeah. And can you go move, uh, move that out of my way so I can watch TV? <laughs> no, she was an incredible woman, incredible. Yeah. And young. Very young. Yeah. Very young. It was a horrible cancer. Yeah. And that was uh, uh, always the loss of a parent is a big, hard, difficult season in life. Yes. She, uh, she was my, my biggest fan. She told me when I was very, very little, she'd come into bed and kiss me and say, uh, wonderful son, you can do anything in life you want to do. Fantastic. And it's true. And you have. So one day you are in the parking lot at work and you're heading into work and you just not, aren't feeling too good. Correct. What I, happened that day? I'd been kind of working too much lately, right? Yeah. So I've been burning it on both ends. And I started walking into work and I kind of stumbled and felt dizzy and I crawled my way to my office and one of my uh, colleagues came in and said, are you okay? And, and then I started shaking. And um, he said, oh, my gosh, what is that? And I said, it's just me working too much. You know, here's a dollar. Can you go grab me a Coke? Mm -hmm. And by the time he went and got me a Coke and came back, I, I drank the Coke and I stopped shaking. So I just attributed it to working too much. Yeah. So the Coke was enough to just sort of stabilize you and you were going about your day or what happened? That's that what I thought. Yeah. And then after the story. many of these events that had happened at work and at basketball games of my kids and okay. all that, I'd have the same thing. But what it was is from my office to the Coke machine back is the length of time my seizures were. So, so you were having seizures. I was having seizures. And you from, didn't know really what they were. Right. They'd not been diagnosed at this point. Nothing. Okay. And how were they being manifested? Were you shaking? You, what, what were you doing? What, what, what did the seizure look like? Did you go down, down to the floor? So I'd get a, a swelling in my stomach, okay. which, again, I thought could have been due to the box of animal crackers and Coke I sure. had that day for breakfast. And breakfast, uh, breakfast of champions. Oh, it's outstanding. Yeah, nothing like it. So I'd start getting a little stomach swell, and, uh, and then I'd start shaking and my teeth would chatter like I just was put in a, a freezer. Okay. My body felt an immense cold. Okay. And um, people would come and put jackets on me and things like that. And uh, then after a while, I thought, you know, I better get this tested. Yeah. So 
you go to the doctors, and what does the doctor say? He says, we'd like you to go to, uh, to the hospital and get a battery of tests. Okay. So he set up a, a heart check, a full blood check, um, a, a brain you know, a CT scan yeah. and all that. So you're not at the CVS Minute Clinic, are you? No, I had okay. MRI. I had everything. All right. And what was the uh, what was the result of that? Well, you know, I remember it like it was yesterday. I'm driving home, and I called my wife, Vicki, and uh, she's been so supportive. And, and Vicki says, the doctor wants a family meeting at 3. Ooh. And I said, oh, that's good news. I was always kind of a cup half full guy, okay. right, Pollyannish. And so she said, uh, you know, let's go. And she was very concerned. And I said, honey, he's probably just going to tell me that, uh, you know, I got to quit eating animal crackers for breakfast. Mm -hmm. So we went to the meeting and I could tell right as I walked into the room, I could see a skull on his computer monitor and Mm -hmm. I could see this large egg in the middle of it. And I'm like, that's not good. And then he announced that what you were looking at on the screen was a brain tumor. Correct. Okay. And it was uh, fairly sizable. It was just uh, around two inches by three inches. Okay. And then how do the, what was the next uh, step? Are they going to cut your head open and try to get it out? Well, the next step was sort of interviewing, if you will. I went and saw many neurosurgeons. Okay. And uh, they... I finally got it narrowed down with the help of 3M. 3M's doctors helped me find the best neurosurgeon that we could in the area. And uh, so 3M is behind you all the way. 3M's they're, been unbelievable. They're helping you and supporting you and going yes, above and beyond. Way above and beyond. It's my family. Okay. And uh, so they scheduled it, and I had my first surgery on uh, March 23 of 09. And what, the, what was the result of that? Were they able to tackle that thing and get most of it out or all of it out? Or They were able to. The, the tumor grew up um, from birth in, in and around all the cranial nerves in my brain. And it's uh, kind of gelatinous. It's kind of like a cottage cheese with a, a skin around it in okay. a way. And so the surgery was uh, 17 and a half hours at United Hospital. God bless those surgeons. I oh, can't yeah. even imagine. Yeah. I mean, I slept through the whole thing. So. You did, huh? <laughs> but my my poor uh, wife and, and my kids. It's a long day. Yeah, my two boys and my daughter. That's that's a lot. And and yeah. wonderful friends were there holding her hand, and, and so I'm blessed with that. So was it a one and done, or have you had another brain surgery? I've had three brain surgeries. Oh, boy. What was the need for the second one? Well, the second one was uh, the tumor was still quite sizable and I still had on and off uh, symptoms and chronic pain and and chronic fatigue and things of that nature. So further MRIs revealed, okay, this area now, we have to go in and debulk this area. Mm-hmm. All right. So that is the time apart between one and two is how long? Okay. So the first surgery was 09. Number two was 2015. Okay. So I actually could work um, at 3M in between 09 and 15. Okay. And I, I felt like I was getting stronger, and then the, 
the tumor won over, time to time to operate again. Yeah. So did the similar symptoms reappear or similar symptoms? And then just uh, I was scheduled for multiple MRIs due to the size of the tumor, and mm-hmm. the MRIs just told the story that it's it's time. Okay. Well, um, I know there's there's. Uh... This is a hard story to tell, so I appreciate you telling it. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, uh, more with Mike Horton, and uh, we'll be back in 90 seconds. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Mike Horton with me today. He's uh, got an amazing story of uh, battling a brain tumor, and there's more to the story because it's uh, more than one brain tumor, isn't it? Yes. I uh, I have a new one, so I'm collecting them. You're, yeah? Yeah, and collecting surgeries. Apparently, if you have five brain surgeries, you get a free Mayo Clinic uh, tote bag. That's really nice. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. Yeah, so you, you have one, you added a second, and so what kind of bragging rights do you have among other brain tumor people? Well, I, uh, I... Well, you just got the one? I got two. I've got, yeah, I'm adding them. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to meet up with some doctors at Mayo Clinic who, Dr. Van Gumpel did the second surgery, and here we go, ready for a third surgery. Boy, uh, Mike, this is amazing. So what was the, the third surgery's goal? The was third it? surgery's goal was I have some tumor around my optic tract. Okay. So they want to be sure and debulk that okay. so vision is is secure. And then other areas where the tumor was just starting to press against, um, yeah. it was time. Yeah. So have you asked yourself in the midst of all of this, uh, God, why is this happening to me? Or what has been your, your thoughts? You know, I had... Originally, I was curious, but um, I'm very faith. Uh, I, I trust God's plan. Mm-hmm. And if God said to me today, Mike, I'll let you go back and not have a tumor, I'd say, no, I want my life the way it is. Wow. So I'm I'm blessed in it. My wife, Vicki, my kids, Zach, Charlie, and Emma, and all my friends. My friends are incredible. I mean, they're unbelievable. Well, you've been a great friend to them. Oh, they're you know, wonderful. Yeah, but that's there's two sides of that coin always. Yeah, so I'm never alone. That's kind of the neat thing. Yeah, and you've really sort of surrendered to God, whatever his plan, thy will be done. Yes. And I believe I'm a better, I believe I can better serve our Lord with a tumor, working with charities and working with other people who just were diagnosed. Yeah. Than if I just maintained my life, you know, working at a wonderful company, but I think I can influence more people this way. That's a, not only a, a powerful statement, Mike, but it's a, it's a brave one. And it's one that is so beyond this world. You're thinking eternally, you're thinking I can help people have hope. Yes. Because in a world with very little hope, especially if people with brain tumors, they're feeling more nervous about the rest of their life yes, and their eternity. And you can show up with hope. Yes. All right. So, um, so three, three, uh, surgeries. Yes. Two brain tumors. And 
talk about your you're now uh, exited from 3M. Yes. You're no longer there. You're sort of on the retirement phase of life, right? I am uh, an officially disabled person. I tried working. They offered me a wonderful job. Okay. And um, my boss, Jolene, who's incredible, uh, she offered me a position that I would have loved to do. And in the middle of talking with her and human resources about the position, I broke down. And uh, she got up and said, friend, come here, and gave me a hug. Mm -hmm. and, And I mean, that's the blessing I have. I talked to my neuropsychologist after, and he said, Mike, you finally realized at that moment that you loved your career and you know what the job entails and you know you just cannot do it. Mm -hmm. So that was a big turning point. Yeah. Tell me about the, the strength of your family today. Does, is it, is it a topic that's always discussed around the house? You know, my wife, Vicki has been tremendous and, and very supportive. And my son, Zachary, my son Charlie, my daughter Emma, they're all blessings. I mean, yeah. we're very a very close family. Yeah. And uh they uh they have my back and I'm so fortunate. And actually with I was a bit of a workaholic and you know, climbing the ladder and traveling at night sure. and twenty four seven. Um I through the tumor I've allowed myself to spend more time with the with the family which is which is nice. Yeah. God always has a way of working things out, doesn't he? Right? Yeah. 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 So um now when you say you've got a little bit of time now to to put your energy towards helping others and serving the community and the community of brain tumor survivors uh talk about what you've been involved with this wonderful organization called Humor to fight the tumor. Yes, I was very fortunate. I joined Humor to Fight the Tumor in 2009. And this is the most wonderful set of people and friends. Joelle Severson started this. Amazing. Oh, she's awesome. Amazing. She's a literal walking angel. She's and, incredible. And amazing what God's doing in her life. Because yes. she's, what, 14 years with a brain tumor? Yes. 15, maybe? Uh, around 14, 15, yeah. 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 And. I know hers was fairly severe. Yes. And what hope that she's continuing to be amazing 15 years later. She's an incredible person. Um, she has and done... And Matt Thurber, amazing. Matt Thurber's outstanding. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the the amount of work that this team does to provide hope to the brain tumor community is just amazing. Um, Humor to Fight the Tumor is uh, 17 years strong. And uh, through Joelle and Matt and Tracy and the whole team's great work, um, has been able to raise over $4.5 million, moving people through the power of hope and laughter. Which is amazing. I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's a big pile of money to give towards brain research. And this is an organization that skims nothing off the top. Nothing. 100% of it goes to brain research. It's, the, it's just the most beautiful organization. You know, we meet often in Matt Thurber's house, Matt and Kristen, and so none of us are paid. We don't take anything. One time Matt laid out a few cookies, and we all fought for them. So that was uh, kind of a big deal. That was funded by the Thurber organization, the (laughs) 12 count of Oreos. So Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, but when you are dealt with a situation, you are saying to 
to God that I surrender my will to you, thy will be done. I know that through this uh, brain tumor, God, you will allow me to serve others in a way that I never knew possible. And you're doing it all with this beautiful spirit of love and optimism and grace. And you're really an inspiration, Mike. Thank you so much. It's, um, I feel so much blessing. Yeah. And my kids tease me around the dinner table, I'll, you know, point to the beans and say, ah, no, they're a blessing. And of course, <laughs> they, they have a lot of fun with that. They'll just randomly point to objects at the table and say, Dad, isn't this napkin a blessing? <laughs> like, yeah. yes. But what a beautiful spirit you are sharing with your kids and, and modeling that everything's a blessing. And you can see my, my boys and my Emma, I mean, they're the most giving, caring, loving people in the world. They would do anything for, for you and for anyone. Yeah, they're just following uh, and the lead of their parents. My wife, Vicki, uh, you know, to have to live through this, that, that's just not easy to see uh, your spouse go through and, you know, and then support me. And then she, she's just been incredible. I mean, she's rushed me to the hospital multiple times. Mm-hmm. I uh, had a little bout with kidney stones after oh, one of the surgeries. Fun. So apparently some chemical in the surgery created two obstructive kidney stones in both kidneys. So I got back from the brain surgery. I'm on like day two at home, and I <laughs> say to Vicki, uh, honey, I really hurt. Okay. And, uh, you know, it's not the Pop-Tarts that I just ate, right. the box of. Right. It might be, but it's not. But it's not. So she takes me to the hospital, and immediately, a few days after release from brain surgery, I'm having two kidney stones zapped in surgery. So surgery number, you know, four. Yes. Yeah, oh boy. Okay. It's kind of fun, these extra surgeries. Yeah. They they count. Yeah, they do. They all add up, but it's kind of fun, isn't it? And now coming up, uh, I think in uh, September, around the 10th, is it? The the Humor to Fight the Tumor is going to have its uh, 17th anniversary event, but it's going to be virtual like so many events this year. And you go to humortofightthetumor.org to learn more about this wonderful organization. If you know someone that has a brain tumor and you want them to be grafted into a community of amazing people, this of course is in the Twin Cities, but I'm sure that you can connect with the organization from anywhere in the country, right? Yes. uh, Website humortofightthetumor.org. And uh, Thursday, September 10th, uh, as Bill was saying, is our virtual event. But, you know, as I was saying, this is a family. Um, Joelle, Matt, Tracy, Brenda, I could keep going on with all the names. It's a family. And we're always here to support folks who are going through this traumatic event or just got news. So always can reach yeah. out to us. And it's not a little deal. I mean, there's a, if, if, if the event was live, there'd be 800 people there. So yes. it's, it's a significant event. But if you want to check it out, the humor part this year, I think, is going to feature the one and only Mike Horton. So there's we're looking forward to that. little something. Yeah, a little something there. So humortofightthetumor.org for more information on that wonderful organization. If you know someone with a brain tumor, uh, it's a wonderful place to go be part of community and to learn uh, about what they're doing. Mike, thanks for being with me today. Thank you so much, and I would just like to finish with, if anyone knows anyone with a a brain tumor, like Bill was saying, you're not alone. Um, This is a community of family and friends, and um, we can all get through this together. Fantastic. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back with lots more.
So normally on Thursdays, of course, Guy Talk happens. And uh, so today I wanted to uh, ask Pastor Tom Parrish to come on the show uh, apart from Guy Talk and talk about uh, equipping Christian disciples for life. I know it's kind of a big topic, but uh, we need to have a plan. And I know some of this is geared a little bit towards pastors and church leaders, but I know everybody can learn from this. And having him on the show separate from Guy Talk hopefully chips away at some of the community service. Tom, welcome. So it's good to be with you one-on-one. <laughs> I know, it's so awfully nice. Fun. It's awfully nice. Now, you've compiled a really interesting list of 10 questions uh, for pastors and church leaders, but I know the whole body, the whole church family uh, can learn from this. So this is uh, important. And it's really helping us uh, equipping Christian disciples for life. In the midst of this COVID-19, it's important that we raise these questions and talk about them. I agree. I mean, if we don't, uh, I'm afraid we get pushed by the wind in every direction. And I want to make sure people have a solid biblical basis and a logical basis for making the decisions and for growing up in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, fantastic. So that's why I've been doing this. Fantastic. So one of the questions that might be asked of pastors and church leaders is, what is your plan when you encounter the reality of the demonic? That's the struggle I think a lot of pastors have. They don't know quite where to go with that. What I tell pastors they need to be doing is this. First of all, if you run into anything that appears demonic or anything that seems out of place or somebody comes out with a strange voice or tells you things that are pretty mystical in nature— First thing you've got to do is, first of all, take them seriously. And that's where I start. I get real serious with the person. I pay attention. Second thing, I listen an awful lot, Bill. I take time to set. I have sat for up to 30 minutes just listening to people talk, trying to get some discernment of what they're talking about or where it's going. Third thing I do in the case, when I really believe there is some real demonic going on, they're telling me they're hearing inner voices or they have this anger inside of them and they want to hurt others. I usually ask, first of all, have you, are you seeing a medical doctor? You know, what medications are you on? And surprisingly, nobody has ever balked at that. They've always told me what medications they're on, what's happening. And so I've become at least understanding of some of those things. But the demonic realm, those things are way beyond that. And most don't know how to deal with it. Matter of fact, Jordan Peterson, the uh, author, the psychologist, he really has come up with some interesting stuff lately, saying that most of mental illness can be traced back to bitterness, anger, resentment, and really opening the doorway for the demonic. And I believe there's a lot of truth to that. So I find out if they're seeing a doctor. And then the next thing I ask them is, I will say, well, tell me about your relationship with Jesus. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Have you ever? Surprisingly, Bill, the majority will say, well, yeah, I grew up in the church. I, I know Jesus is Lord and that kind of stuff. I said, well, then let's you and I say it together out loud right now, that Jesus is Lord and the only way of salvation. I did this a couple of years ago with a young woman who was in her 30s who had come in with a friend. And, Bill, her face changed in front of me, and her voice went guttural. I couldn't even imitate it. And she literally said to me, I hate him. I hate him. He's not my God. I hate him. And I had a couple of staff members with me, and they were trying to climb off the wall at that point. They'd never seen anything like that. And I remember very clearly looking at her and saying, in the name of Jesus and by his shed blood, be quiet and come out of her. Though she collapsed on the floor. I thought we were going to have to call 911. I thought I killed this poor woman. I didn't know what was going on. A couple minutes later, she came back around and sat up and she said, oh, my goodness, 
for the first time in five years, the voices are gone. Oh, wow. Now, I've seen this over and over and over. So this is not a one-shot deal. The other thing I tell pastors to do, and I've actually designed studies for pastors, complete study material, on how to study about the demonic in Scripture, how Jesus dealt with it, the apostles dealt with it, and how they can deal with it and teach it in their local church and not sound like they're off the wall. Yeah, well, there's a fair amount of the New Testament, isn't there, Tom, about the the, the demonic? And I, It's huge. Yeah, and I think of— We've ignored most of it. Yeah, well, I even think of Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood— but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the supernatural forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It is sometimes uh, difficult to, to understand all this, because it does happen in the invisible world. It is overwhelming, and I think a lot of people, a lot of pastors I've worked with, Bill, are literally shocked when they first run into this, like they've never seen it or understood it. And I had one pastor tell me, he said, you know, I know you've been talking about this for years, and at meetings, because I would help pastors try to deal with this. And he would say, I thought you were crazy. And then let me tell you about this woman that came in to see me. And mm-hmm. he said, I was never so scared in all my life. But the one thing I remembered is you said, call on the name of Jesus and it shed blood. And he said, I did. And he said, to this day, I always believe that's what got me out of there. In wow. That situation. So what about if the person comes in and they're just talking about hearing inner voices? Yeah, when they're when they're doing that again, I, I find out their medical background. I listen. What are the voices telling you? How often are you hearing them? And uh, I had a young man that I worked with a couple of years ago uh, in his teens who had been seeing a, a psychiatrist for years on medication. Couldn't sleep at night, Bill. Here he is, like sixteen, seventeen, can't sleep at night. Uh, always hearing these voices and whatever else. So as we talked, and he confessed to me his faith in Jesus, which was a good place to start. I said, all right, do you realize that, you know, the medication isn't helping you? You've been taking medication for five years, and you're still hearing the voices. You still can't sleep. I want you to try something different. So what I taught him is how to use the name and the authority of Jesus to command the demons and the voices to be gone and to leave him. Now, I'm not going to kid anybody. This took about a six-month process with this young man. I'd see him once a week, and we would do this together, and he would do it at home. And after a couple of months, he said, you know, they're starting to back off. I'm not hearing this as much as I used to. I'm really getting some freedom. And he said, I got to tell you, for the first time in 16 years, I slept without a light on last night. Oh, wow. Now, wow. that's been a couple of years ago. I just talked to him the other day. He's now in his 20s. And he is substantially free from this. I mean, he's really free. Once in a while, he'll hear an inner voice, but he knows what to do. And the good part is he's now ministering to other people having the same issues, and they're seeing freedom. Yeah, well, he had a plan, and he's he's working the plan, which is awesome. What about Tom? That's exactly what's going yeah. to happen. What about when, if you're a pastor or a church leader, and someone comes in and says that they they want to they want to end their life, they want to commit suicide? I know that is something that has to be taken instantly seriously. But uh, oh, no. what would be your counsel in that instance? Well, one thing I do right away is I, I really look them in the eye and pay attention. I know I, I make sure I don't have a cell phone nearby. I make sure I'm not tapping my foot. I mean, I concentrate on the individual, and I'm looking in their eyes. Now, I don't always get eye contact because they're looking down, but I try to do that. I'm praying under my breath. Lord, give me wisdom to understand what's going on and how to respond and how to talk to them. And as that begins to happen, as, as uh, we begin to dialogue like that, 
Then what I'll do is I will say to them, tell me about the voices. How often do you hear them? Why do you think you need to commit suicide? Or what are you telling yourself? And I'll usually hear a story. And a story stems from a, an incident or something in their past or something that happened with their family or parents. And then I will talk about how to forgive them and how to work on that forgiveness. And once they understand the forgiveness, then we go back and we literally command the voices to be quiet in the name of Jesus. And do you have a new voice that says, for, you know, when I say to them, when you hear a voice that says, you're worthless, you shouldn't be here, you should kill yourself, you need to respond with the word of God that says, I'm a child of God, I'm creating his image, I have a purpose, I'm not going to listen to this voice, you have no authority, and I am a new person in Christ. And these people I usually work with quite a bit, uh, and up to this point, Bill, every single one of them has eventually gotten free from the desire to commit suicide. Well, that's really powerful. So, all right, let's talk about uh, if you're a church leader, a pastor, um, and you are dealing with a lot of false thinking. People have got a lot of false ideas. And how do you address when people start telling you a lot of false thinking? Well, I think the first thing you've got to realize is this. As a pastor, as a leader, you have an obligation to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And we have in the Western culture, especially among Protestants, we have kind of evaluated that down to being loving, kind, and gracious. Now, I'm not against being loving, kind, and gracious, but I'm also for speaking the truth and sometimes doing it with good with boldness. So what I try to do is uh, I try to be a well-read person, whether it's in science, whether it's in these other realms. When somebody comes in and says to me something like, well, you know, you know, Genesis is just a myth. You know, that's really evolution. It took millions and millions of years. My first inclination years ago would either to be walk away and shrug my shoulders or to get in just an argument with them like, well, that's stupid. Why would you say something like that? What I've learned to do now and what I try to teach others to do is that I ask these people, you've got an interesting concept. You think evolution took care of everything. Please tell me the sources you've used and the study you've used to come to that conclusion. Now, nine times out of 10, Bill, it's more hearsay. Mm-hmm. It's more rumor. They haven't really done the study. I will also say to them, show me in Scripture, especially in those first chapters of Genesis, where the writing is wrong where it's misleading us, where it's not true, because you're saying that it didn't happen. Show me where it didn't happen. Help me to understand that. Usually by this time, I've got them to where they don't know where to go or what to say, because they have allowed their rhetoric or their pronunciations to stand on their own without any evidence to back it up. And I, tell, I told one guy, uh, one guy said to me, well, you know, science has just proven that, that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You can't do that. And I said, well, tell me the scientific method. What are the three things that have to be in place for science to work? You know, and and he didn't know what to say. And, of course, it's observation, testing, and repeating it is what you're talking about. And I said, so how are you evaluating the truth of this? What are you basing this on? He didn't have anything to base it on. And we went round and round for a couple of weeks like this. I'd meet him for lunch, and we'd talk, and he would get more frustrated with me. (laughs) But the Lord spoke to his heart, and he ultimately became a Christian and really came to a new understanding, and now he's helping people uh, really understand how science and and Christianity are really not at that much divergence. It's just that science hasn't caught up to what Christianity is talking about. 
All right, I'm being joined by Pastor Tom Parrish, who's normally part of Guide Talk. I got him by myself for this day talking about equipping Christian disciples for life. We've got a plan we're working on, and we're going to take a little break, and we'll be right back with lots more in just a minute. Pastor Tom Parrish with me today. Normally he's part of Guide Talk on Thursdays, and he will be this Thursday as well. But we're talking today about equipping Christian disciples for life. It's important to have a plan, although we're gearing this a little bit towards pastors and church leaders. I think this applies to everybody, and you all, you're going to all want this information in your, in your head. So what is the plan, Tom, to uh, enable you to discern and defeat temptation? Because there's lots of it every day, and we're seeing more and more of it on the news. It's all over the place, and it, it, we're a visual society, though. I mean, you talk about media. I look at media today, and, and I did a long study a while ago on the TV shows starting clear back uh, in the 50s up to the present, and how many of those shows have gone from comedy and just humor and entertainment to social engineering, to where they're trying to teach us a new way to look at life apart from Christianity and uh, new lifestyles for marriage and all that goes with it. Now, when it comes to temptation, you and I did not grow up with TV that had as much uh, fleshy material to it as we do now. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter where you go, there's that temptation. And here's the battle. Jesus built us to be attracted to the opposite sex, and the physical part of that is normal, especially when you're young. The problem is when it becomes dominant and it takes over. So the first thing I ask people to do when they tell me they've got, you know, these terrible temptations or they, they've lusting constantly or what are they going to do about this? You know, I say, well, the first thing to do is to be honest with, to, with Jesus about yourself. Let's start and tell Jesus right now that, Lord, i got a serious problem. I can't conquer this problem. I am tempted to this. Matter of fact, it dominates so much of my thinking in life. And I'm embarrassed, but I don't know what to do. We start there. And I will pray with people for anywhere from a few minutes to I've prayed for several hours with people over these things as they want to confess or talk. Second thing is I, I tell them, now you've got to come up with a real plan to deal with this temptation. I said, where do you go? Where do you get tempted the most? And as most guys have told me, well, I get tempted on the Internet. Okay, I understand that. There are solutions to that on the Internet. There are programs you can put in for virtually nothing that will at least stop you from going in initially. It will come up with a red flag and say, do you really want to go here? And I find that something like that, and I told these men and some women, that that is kind of a check and balance for the Holy Spirit then has a chance to speak to your heart. The other thing I do is when they're dealing with temptation, whether it's for sexual temptation, money temptations, whatever that is, I ask them, Call upon the name of Jesus and help. ask him to help you put your family members, your children's bodies in that picture, your sister's you know, money or wealth or body, to where you realize how disgusting it is. And remember, these other people you're looking at or you're wanting to get things from are somebody's son and daughter, brother or sister, somebody made in the image of Jesus. 
And for most, again, most of the men that I've worked with, Bill, and, and not all of them, some of them have never gotten free. I'll just be honest. Mm-hmm. And for men, sexual is the big temptation. For others, it's the money temptation. For others, it's the power temptation. Um, it all goes back to wanting to be God, wanting to have control, wanting to say, I have a right to do this. And when I finally started looking in the mirror at myself, Bill, and saying, I don't have a right to anything. The only thing I have a right to is the shed blood of Jesus. And I don't want to do anything from this moment on to disappoint Jesus. And it's kept me out of trouble. Uh, Not that I'm not tempted. I sure am tempted. Mm -hmm. I still am. But now I've got tools to begin to fight back. Yeah. And the tools keep me from stumbling into something I don't want to get into in the first place. And, Tom, maybe we need to— Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. And then if you do sin, if you still step over that line, which some do, then we have a thing called repentance. And the Lord is always eager to hear us and forgive. I'm sorry. That's I want to get that in there. You no, know, I appreciate that. Maybe we need to start by believing it's possible uh, to not just excuse sin, but seeking to put it to death and say that's exactly. possible that we can do that. Yes, it is. And, and I know people, uh, you know, when you've been hurt in life, I had a woman who was hurt terribly as a child by a family member who molested her uh, continually. And she was so bitter at him. Her temptation was she wanted to kill him as an adult. She wanted to strike him down. She thought of every way to call lightning down from heaven to kill this guy. She wouldn't go to any family gatherings where he was. He had never admitted to it. Now he's dying in the hospital, and he's got a heart problem. And she comes to me, and she said, what should I do? I've been hearing about Jesus when I come to church here. I know he wants me to forgive, but I hate this man. We began a process that very day, Bill, of helping her literally lay that at the feet of Jesus. I mean, literally see Jesus' hands and feet, lay that bitterness and resentment. And then she actually went to the hospital and met with this man and said, you know what you did to me? It just about killed me. I wanted you dead for all my life. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And will receive Jesus' forgiveness for what you've done. This man broke down and cried and cried and said, I'm an evil, wicked man. I don't deserve anything. She led him to Christ. He died the next morning. Wow. Oh, my. So there's power. The problem is most of us Christians don't know how to put that power to work. Mm-hmm. Well, we're so timid about it. My goal in ministry, I went from being what I would call a theologian, where I could tell you the Greek and the Hebrew and do all of that, to where I hope I become a practical teacher or disciple of the Word, where I can give people real tools, real methodology for taking and putting into effect the things we learn from the Word of God into my daily life, into my marriage, into my family, into my relationships. Mm-hmm. If you just joined us, we're talking to Pastor Tom Parrish. We're talking about equipping Christian disciples for life. And uh, Tom, this is, I know, kind of geared towards pastors and teaching uh, leaders, but also everyone is interested in hearing your answers to some of these questions I got for you. But what would be the plan to be able to accurately articulate the truth of the Bible in a very skeptical world? I love that one. That's one of my favorites. And there are some really good Internet uh, interviews. Um, and a matter of fact, if, if any of your listeners want to get a hold of me, then go to my website. And I'll just it's just to eternity.org. And it's got my email address. And I will send you those links because they go through a process of showing you when people say things, a challenge the Bible. What's a way to respond to that? And a lot of it is the fact that most people are not as well equipped in understanding the Bible as they need to be. Therefore, they get stumped by people's questions about the Bible or get thrown off kilter 
where they need to be able to come back with reasonable answers. And I mean, Josh McDowell and his son have done this. There are so many others that have given really good input and good feedback. What I've learned to do is this. I listen to what people say to me. And, and I'll, I'll let you in on the secret, Bill. My mother, who died two years ago, she was 99 years, eight months when she died. Uh, brilliant woman. She said, Tom, if you give people enough rope, they'll hang themselves. And I had to think about that as a young man. What she was saying is true. Give people the time to talk and tell you why they don't believe something or why they think the Bible is, you know, wrong or and, and whatever. They will open a door for you to be able to respond that will speak to them. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what I've tried to do with people. Give them enough time to tell me, but make sure I know enough of the Bible and the things that surround the Bible, all the good teaching that goes with that and, you know, all the archaeological evidence. And, and it's reasonable to do that. Today with the Internet, every Christian can do what would take me five days when I was in seminary going to the library now can be done literally in five minutes. But you need to go look, and then there are there are usually about 10 or 15 normal responses to the Bible or Christianity that there are already responses out there. You just need to learn how to utilize those. Yeah, I, when I have a discussion with somebody, if they're not a Christian, I'll, I'll oftentimes ask, tell me about the God that you rejected. Tell me about that yes. God. And they'll yes. proceed to describe a God that I would say, yeah, I would reject that God too. Yeah. Well, I think here's the other problem. If we as pastors get insulted when somebody asks this question, uh, well, I'm a pastor, you shouldn't be talking to me like that. Or you're a lay person who gets hurt or whatever, and the emotions get involved, you've already lost. Take the emotions completely out of it. Mm-hmm. It's almost like going in for surgery. When I had surgery on my foot last year, um, my prayer was that the, the surgeon didn't have a fight with his wife that morning, that he wasn't taking something medication-wise he shouldn't have been, that he was fully engaged on my foot and nothing else for the next four hours, and that's exactly what he did. The same thing is true here. If we let our emotions get in control, if we get hurt by what other people say, if we want to battle back, we've already lost. Yeah. What I want to do is I want to come back with the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth of the Word of God, and a logic that they're going to have a hard time disagreeing with. All right. And it's been fun to do that. Yeah. L- let me ask this question. What is your plan to teach that Jesus alone is Lord and Savior and that they, you need to personally pursue him for your entire life? That's probably the biggest question there is out there. I look at the church today, Bill, and I get concerned. I hear a lot of God talk in churches. I don't hear a lot about Jesus. And yet when you look at the entire Bible, and I believe this, from Genesis to Revelation, it's really about Jesus and his coming into this world to save us. Matter of fact, you go to Colossians 1.15, and it says that, you know, he is literally the creator of all things. Nothing has been created without him. That includes you and me. That includes this world. Uh, so he is the actual creator, according to Scripture, in that sense. And the I am statements, and there are seven of them in John's Gospel. You know, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the resurrection of life. What most people don't know is that term I am was not just a, a statement or pronoun used in Scripture. It was the name of God. Because when Moses met God at the burning bush, and he said, who do I tell them sent me? He said, I am that I am, or I shall be that I shall be. And that's essentially, you know, what title we get for the Lord. Jesus used that title for himself, and that's what got the Pharisees and Sadducees so angry at it, because he's saying, I am God. Mm -hmm. I am the resurrection, the life. 
My goal is this. When I work with young people, young adults, new Christians, or people that are curious about Christianity, I move them into the Gospel of John, and I work through all 21 chapters with them. Uh, and I'll ask them, you read a chapter a day, I'll read a chapter a day, you read chapter one, I'll read chapter one. And then I'm going to call you tonight, and I'm going to ask you one question, and I've got one challenge for you. And, and as we work through that together, they keep getting confronted with the reality of Jesus over and over. And before I usually get to chapter 21, they have already confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior. Hmm. The biggest problem I have is getting people to go through it. They're too busy. Right. They think they know. They don't have the time. But if you don't know Jesus, and he said, I am, there's no other way to the Father but by me, scripturally, you're lost. There is no other way except Jesus. And I love what C.S. Lewis said. Either that Jesus was a lunatic, a man who thinks he's on the level of poached egg, or he is who he says he is. But you can't come away with this patronizing nonsense that he was a good teacher. And I love C.S. Lewis the way he ends this. He said he did not leave that open to us, and he did not intend to. And that's the truth. Jesus draws the line in the sand and says, here I am, cross the line and come to me. If you don't, you stay on your line and you're lost eternally. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard lesson. And people don't always want to hear that. But it is the message of Christianity, and it's the most loving message we can give people. Tom, thank you so much for spending a little extra time with me this week. I assume I'll see you on Thursday for God Talk. I plan to be there. It's sure. always a delight. Appreciate what you're doing, Bill. Terrific. Pastor Tom Parrish has been my guest. And that wraps up our show for the whole day. Thank you uh, so much for spending this time with me. I have loved spending this time with you. And I hope you've had a wonderful day. And I hope you have a lovely evening. I already can't wait for our time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.